Hey friends, I'm Allie O'Grady and welcome to Thoughtful Human, the podcast. In today's episode, you'll meet Ben White. Ben was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer at the very early age of 26, while in peak fitness condition and really early into his career as a naval aviator. Today, Ben is celebrating three years cancer-free and doing some amazing advocacy work in the colorectal cancer space while pursuing a master's in public policy over in Washington, D.C. to help continue this fight. I had the great fortune of meeting Ben back in December 2019 when I was in D.C. working on a new Thoughtful Human Retail program. And as part of the program, we were promoting one of my favorite cancer nonprofits, which is the Cancer Support Community, where he worked at the time. So I got the opportunity to pop into their headquarters, and I was really inspired by him then, and I'm even more inspired by him now after learning so much more about his story and just seeing what a fierce, vulnerable, and consistent advocate he's been and how much work he's doing to ensure better outcomes for others facing a colorectal cancer diagnosis. Now, if you listen to the last episode, you already know that it's Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And while I'm not huge on these awareness months in general, uh, you know, I prefer to keep the conversation going all year long, but I really wanted to take the time this month because it does need so much more awareness. According to the National Cancer Institute, colorectal cancer is currently the third most prevalent type of cancer with the second highest mortality rate. It will account for over 52,000 deaths in 2021. So I need you to know and care about it. I also need you to know that unlike many types of cancer, it is completely preventable and very treatable in its early stages. As you may also know by now, I lost my favorite human to this disease back in 2011. My father was originally misdiagnosed with hemorrhoids and Ben on this episode was initially thought to have diverticulitis. And while both of those conditions obviously exist, uh, I want to be really clear about the symptoms related to colorectal cancer and put them on your radar so you can talk with your doctor as necessary and really help advocate for yourself. So per the Mayo Clinic, symptoms may include a persistent change in your bowel habits, including diarrhea or constipation, or a change in the consistency or size of your stool rectal bleeding uh, or blood in your stool, though, as you'll hear in this episode with Ben, this is not always the case. Persistent abdominal discomfort, such as cramps, gas, or pain, a feeling that your bowel doesn't empty completely, weakness or fatigue, and unexplained weight loss. While this feels painful and uncomfortable to share, uh, I just, reflecting back, remember being a kid and my sister and I and my family in general poking fun at my dad for some of these symptoms, namely gas and taking a long time in the bathroom. And I so, so wish we had fostered a different environment, one where we could talk more openly and uh, encourage him to track his symptoms and push for additional testing instead of teasing him. Uh, Doctors estimated that my father's cancer was about 10 years progressed by the time he was diagnosed at age 43. And it There's no question that his life and prognosis would have looked a lot different if we'd all been more sensitive and educated on the subject. So I'm trying to get in the awkward habit now of just getting curious about people's symptoms instead of making them feel any kind of way, embarrassed, ashamed, or trying to hide their symptoms altogether. 
We talk a lot about how to communicate around this stuff in the episode, but from the get-go, I just want to remind you that your reactions to these kinds of symptoms can be really powerful, either in shaming people from ever talking about them again or encouraging them to tune in and get the help that they need. And if you're wondering how you get colorectal cancer in the first place, you can join the rest of us in scratching our heads because doctors really aren't super clear on what causes most colon cancers at this time. However, there are some important risk factors for you to consider. So from the American Cancer Society and the CDC, uh, these are the most common risk factors. Number one, your age. So it is more common for people 50 years of age and up to have colorectal cancer, although we are seeing an alarming increase in early onset colorectal cancer in young adults with death rates from patients under 55 actually increasing 1% per year from 2008 to 2017. Uh, if you have a personal history of inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, this also puts you at heightened risk for developing colorectal cancer. Also, any inherited syndromes uh, like Lynch syndrome, which Ben talks a bit about in the episode. Type 2 diabetes is another risk factor, as well as your racial and ethnic background with higher prevalence for Ashkenazi Jews and higher incidence and mortality rates for African-Americans. And then, of course, some lifestyle risk factors. So things like if you are overweight, if you are not physically active, if you have a diet that's really high in red meats, low levels of vitamin D, smoking or other tobacco use, and moderate to heavy alcohol use. So all that scary stuff said, we really want to amplify Ben's story and bring more awareness to colorectal cancer at all ages to encourage early testing and diagnosis and hopefully help save a lot of lives and unnecessary suffering. So I'll share a little bit more about testing at the end of this episode and how my uh, personal first colonoscopy went. And we'll include a bunch of resources in the show notes for you as well. Throughout our conversation, we talk about Ben's surprising diagnosis, overcoming shame and navigating life with a colostomy bag, how he feels about survival rates and talking about death related to cancer, some of the long-term impacts of treatment like fertility and neuropathy, the importance of caregivers, how having a life-threatening disease at an early age has changed his worldview and relationships, and finally, uh, how to show up and advocate for someone you love with a colorectal cancer diagnosis. Please enjoy Ben White. Well, first of all, um, welcome. Thank you so much for being here, Ben. Uh, do you mind sharing with me your pronouns? Uh, yeah, I prefer he, him pronouns. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. So I have to tell you, I feel a little invasive because I have spent a lot of time reading about you recently <laughs> and I feel like I know um, too much about your life for only having briefly spoken with you in person. <laughs> so um, I have a ton of questions and there were just a lot of really interesting similarities in, you know, in our past, you know, obviously I did not personally have colorectal cancer, but my father did uh, for about 10 years. And I'm just really interested in, well, first of all, I was really impressed by how open you've been with your journey. I think that in and of itself is just such a huge, huge part of this journey that we're on to bring awareness to colorectal cancer in a way that doesn't feel as as scary or shameful or stigmatizing to people. I think you've done incredible work already in that domain, but I'm excited to just jump in and talk with you more about it. So 
uh, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, your journey really started ramping up around this issue in 2017. Is that correct? Yeah, it was about this time uh, in 2017, and we're in March right now recording. Um, and yeah, well, well, thank you also for all your kind words. And I've always been very open about my journey. I think for me, it's been a little bit cathartic. And also, there's been a lot of power in sharing my story and finding my own community through that. So so that's, I'm absolutely an open book. Please feel free to ask any questions uh, as we go throughout this this conversation today. Um Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I, I just want to say, even reading through a lot of your posts, I just realized the lack of community that I've sought and found in my own journey. I'm like, oh, all these things. Yes, that was exactly our our experience. And just, you know, as awful as all of it is, just even understanding that there are other people that even understand what this what this process is like is, um, you know, it is comforting in a in a weird kind of way. Absolutely. I'll dive into my story though. So it was kind of early 2017. Um, I started having health issues. It was just kind of abdominal cramping and constipation and irregularities and, and things of that nature. And it's it's tough because the colorectal cancer signs, things change slowly. So one of the, the biggest red flags for colorectal cancer is blood in your stool. And I never had that. I never had that issue where I was seeing mm-hmm. lots of blood in the toilet or anything like mm-hmm. that. And so all the other symptoms are, are really slow changes. I mean, when you see, like, talk about the changing of your, you know, shapes and sizes of your bowel movements, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's, it, it's slow and it's over time. And looking back now, I can see, oh, yeah, I went from being very regular and going to the bathroom once, a, you know, going poop once a day to I would be going like five or six times a day or I'd wake up in the middle of the night and have to go poop. Like mm-hmm. that, that's not super normal. Um, but it changed so slowly that by the time I got there, you know, it's like the analogy of like the frog slowly boiling in the pot of water. Like you don't realize the water's boiling until it's a little too late. Yeah. Um, so being 26 at the time, um, I had a very difficult time getting diagnosed. Um, there, there is an, an increase in what we call early age onset or EAO colorectal cancer. And there is not a lot of data behind the why yet. There is only the data that shows that, uh, you know, if you're born after it's something like 1980, you are like twice as likely to get diagnosed under the age of 40. Hmm. Um, and I should look up those st- stats. Uh, those aren't exactly, <laughs> I don't have those exactly memorized, but uh, you are much more likely to get it. And there's, there's finally some good research trying to explore the why. But the reality is that the majority uh, of colorectal cancer patients are much older with the average age of onset is 69. I do know that statistic. Um, so me being 26 was an anomaly and yeah. it was very difficult getting diagnosed. You know, the first time I went to my primary care provider, he said, well, you're probably just constipated, you know, and I was in the Navy and this is my, you know, my flight doc who other than the cancer, I was very, very healthy. You know, I was at like peak fitness in my life. And so, yeah, it's not like he's thinking cancer just because somebody comes in with abdominal cramps and right. pooped in a while or is having irregularities. So it was just a really slow workup, but I continued to have these issues. And I remember one, one like Sunday night in particular, not being able to get out of bed all day Sunday because my, you know, I was having so many, so much abdominal pain. And so I went to see my doctor again the next day and he, uh, you know, did the typical, like did some blood work. And at this point, I want to say it was maybe April, late April or May, he said, okay, well, we, we did an x-ray in a previous visit and didn't really see anything. He said, I, I want to get a CT and see what's going on because that can give me a little bit better picture of what's happening. 
So they scheduled me uh, for a CT for like the next day. Um, I, you know, the facility I was at that day didn't have a, a CT machine. So I had to go to a different Naval hospital. Oh yes. I don't think we mentioned this. I, I was in the Navy at the time. I was a helicopter pilot. So that was kind of my career. That was what I was doing. I was living in Jacksonville, Florida. And so uh, I went and had my CT and everything was fine. And the day after my CT, I had a call from my doctor at 7 a.m. And he said, you need to go to the emergency room right away. They're expecting you. And to quote him, he said, it looked like a grenade went off in my colon. Oh, that's, that's comforting verbiage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, obviously like I had been in pain, but I was still functioning day to day. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of other red flags that, like I said, it happened slowly, but I had been losing weight. Uh, without really trying, you know, it's not like I was on a diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was exercising regularly because that was part of my lifestyle, but uh, I, I had been losing weight. I had, you know, had night sweats, all these kind of red flag symptoms that kind of added up. But anyway, but, I, I got to the, sorry, go ahead. But you're 26. And, you know, of course you could attribute that to so many things. Uh, was I lived in Florida. Who doesn't sweat? It right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, was colorectal cancer, cancer in general, even on your radar prior to this period of time? By the time I went to the ER that day, it was, I, my family is both my parents are nurses. My big sister is a nurse practitioner. And they knew that these issues that had been ailing me for months were likely more than constipation. And I do have some, um, Ashkenazi Jewish heritage in my background, which makes me more likely for Crohn's disease and, uh, also colorectal cancer. So there, there were things that were like, well, you know, this, this is in your genetic history. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I went to the ER and it was, again, being 26 was a disservice because the two doctors walked in and they were shocked. They looked at me and they're like, oh, we thought you would be some like, you know, old man dying on your deathbed from what we saw on your CT, but you look fine. So uh, they diagnosed me with diverticulitis, which is kind of a an inflammation and infection of your um, colon and sent me home on antibiotics. And I, I knew that that wasn't really the fix. I was optimistic. It was like, great, I'll start, you know, start taking these antibiotics, get back to work. Um, and things got worse and things very quickly progressed from, from this point on. It, it was like things happened really quickly. And I, I was losing a lot of weight quickly at that point. Um, I think it was like the next week I went back to the ER and I still had doctors who just didn't really take me seriously. I'm grateful that I have the family who was so entrenched in the medical system and Mm -hmm. knew that I needed to advocate for myself because my instinct was just to go, well, the doctors have years and years of training. They know what's right. If they're telling me this is what's wrong, this is what's wrong. But you know, when the round of antibiotics didn't clear anything up and things were getting worse and worse, uh, my family kind of advocated. It's like, no, you need to go in and demand some more answers. And Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the typical thing they would do is schedule colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, but my CT showed that my colon was so inflamed and I had what are called micro perforations. So I had basically the, at this point, the tumor was blocking my colon and there's so much back pressure that at points my colon had, had these tiny ruptures, uh, which are dangerous because if you, uh, have a, a bigger perforation, you can get bacteria mm-hmm. in your peritoneal cavity and then you go septic, um, and that's very, very bad. Uh, so they were afraid to do a, uh, a colonoscopy because there had already been these micro perforations. It meant that my colon wall was weaker. So they were afraid that they might accidentally break through. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to give me a few weeks to heal um, before trying a colonoscopy. Um, 
but yeah, even at this point, I mean, I had doctors who clearly didn't believe I was really sick. And this is kind of more of a, a side issue in which there are oftentimes, I think, medical professionals in the military who deal with maybe folks who are just trying to, who they think are just trying to get out of work for a little while and, and get mm. some better, you know, time off work. And I felt like that was what they were implying I was doing mm-hmm. at times. And it, at one point I raised to one of the doctors, uh, you know, what about colon cancer? Is that a possibility? And they looked me in the face and they said, you are too young for colon cancer. You are way too young. You don't fit any of the profiles. It can't be colon cancer. And eventually after many trips back and forth, I think I had a, a three day hospital stay. And then I went in for another seven or eight days. I, I finally had a, a surgeon who took me seriously. She walked in and said, you are really sick and we, you have not been taken seriously enough and we need to figure out what's going on. So uh, her plan was to kind of keep me on observation. Um, at this point, I was no longer able to keep foods down because my tumor, unbeknownst to my medical team or me, but what had happened was my tumor had grown to fully completely block my colon. So nothing mm-hmm. was coming through. Mm-hmm. So I actually went on like, IV nutrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had a needle in my arm and that's how I was getting my nutrition. Um, but I'd lost a lot of weight. And, and so we waited about a week. Um, and my doctor was hoping that my surgeon was hoping that things would kind of calm down and then we could plan a surgery to poke in and, and see what was going on with me. And, uh, and then she got sent to a like last minute trip because she was a Navy doctor. Uh, she got like assigned somewhere for like a, a two week stint. So with like, you know, 12 hours notice, she was like, Hey, I'm going, I got to, you got to switch docs. So here's your new doctor. Um, and my new doctor, uh, I'm very grateful for him. He, he said, I don't want to wait anymore. Uh, you have had nutrition. Now you're getting a little more stable. It's, it's time to go into the surgery. So we went in, um, can you tell us at this time what your symptoms are looking like when you say, you know, things were getting worse. So if you're not passing anything, what is, is it the intensity of your abdominal cramping and pain is getting worse? What else is happening for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't pass anything. So I couldn't eat right. when I was eating, I was just vomiting. Right. Um, and so I continued to lose weight in this time period. I think I lost total in all my, like in like a month long time period, I lost like 20, 25 pounds, something wow. like that, which is a lot in mm-hmm. a short period of time. Um, again, you know, the night sweats, like pretty much every red flag cancer symptom other than the blood in my stool. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's super point, important because I think that people do think of that as a defining factor if you don't have that. So I think that's really important for people to hear. Yeah. And, and I mean, at this point, the team knew something was very, very wrong, but it was just, okay, is this, is this some crazy aggressive late, like early onset Crohn's that just hit so hard that your colon, like closed in on itself or mm-hmm. some sort of infection that caused that, that they, they pretty much knew that things weren't going through, but we didn't know why. Um, and I think the reality was everyone in the room knew, but we couldn't just say it until we had definitive evidence, yeah. uh, you know, by this point, it had been weeks uh, of lead up. And so um, my surgeon said, yeah, you know, you've been on the nutrition, you're, you're, you're looking a little better because I wasn't as weak anymore. I wasn't getting, you know, I was also, I was exhausted, just so fatigued because I didn't have any energy. I wasn't eating. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, um, and so I went in for what was supposed to be an exploratory surgery where they would take the, you know, little laparoscopic tools and just poke tiny little holes and go, uh, see what was going on. Uh, and while doing that, they found a lemon sized tumor in my colon. And so they, uh, opened me up kind of a big, long slice down my belly and took it out and made sure there were no other, uh, tumors elsewhere in my body. And thankfully there weren't. Um, and my surgeon did, you know, given that that wasn't what he had planned to do for a surgery, he went in expecting to just take a look. 
Uh, he did a fantastic job uh, and got all the cancer out, uh, you know, the full tumor out in that that clean go and was able to get enough to properly stage me. And so I, I woke up with a colostomy because they removed about six inches of my colon and a cancer diagnosis. So that was pretty jarring. And that was how I got diagnosed. And what month was this in? This was in May now. So yeah, I would say that like the first issues kind of started to arise in February, March. And, and from March to May was when I mean, now I know at that point was when I went from having a little room in my colon for things to pass to the tumor blocking the entire yeah. colon, and that's why it progressed so quickly. So in a three-ish month period, you went from being full active duty in the Navy to- In helicopters. <laughs> in heli- flying helicopters to, you know, exploring these issues, going in for a test to waking up with a colostomy bag and a lemon-sized tumor. That's- absolutely crazy. Tell was, me what that felt like. Yeah. I mean, it was in, in a weird way. It was the diagnosis was in a sense relief. It was like, okay, we finally have an answer at least, and we can start moving forward with what's the next step. What's the next plan. But I mean, I was 26 single and living in Florida and all my family lived in Northern California at the time. Um, by the time I had my surgery, my mom had actually flown out with me because uh, I was there by myself and I'm so grateful for that support. So my mom flew out and was there for me uh, through that surgery. And it was just lonely it, the whole way through. It was like, you're way too young for this. You can't have colon cancer. And then I did. And so, of course, you know, you get online, you look and it's like, there's there's not a huge, there's not a ton of us who who are diagnosed that young. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was a lot to deal with in a short time and it it certainly, I think the biggest thing was the feeling like, I was like, how, how is this like happening to me? Because it's so rare and it's so uncommon for somebody. I was so healthy otherwise, you know, mm-hmm. other than the cancer. <laughs> Which, um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? You know, how do you even begin to make sense of, of that and what yeah, well, randomness and unfairness and just this, um, abrupt disruption to your life. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, the first thing, the first initial response to this was that, well, there's likely some sort of genetic disorder. So there's specifically one that's well-known called Lynch syndrome that puts you at a very high risk for a multitude of cancers. So the, the initial thought was, well, we need to get a genetic panel because you're likely Lynch positive. And that would explain this. Um, patients with Lynch are at a higher increase for like I said, colorectal cancer as well as cervical cancer for women, um, prostate cancer. There's this whole list. And once you know you're lens positive, it, you know, you have a lot more close follow-up and screening for all of these different types of cancers for the rest of your life. But my genetic panel came back negative for everything. So I still don't really have an explanation now, years later. Um, hopefully one day the genetics will catch up or we'll, we'll figure out what's going on. But as far as the why me, I mean, I think that to varying degrees, um, you know, we all suffer through these kind of things in our lives where you have a shock and a, or, or things don't never go as planned. That's life. And it's, it's not about, you know, the cards are dealt, but how you play them. And, and I, I, I don't know that I have an explanation as to, you know, the why me, um, but I'm trying to turn that lemon into lemonades here. Lemonades, lemonade. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So another thing that struck me about the way in which you came to your diagnosis is just this uh, lack of control and powerlessness. It wasn't like, here's what's going to happen and you're going to have an ostomy. It, it, you just woke up and had it. And 
can you walk me through? I mean, maybe just explain for people who aren't familiar what that even means. And, and, you know, I know that that's a huge part of the shame and embarrassment. A lot of times people feel as they're navigating this particular type of cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up. Cause I, I realized that you and I both kind of talk a lot of colon cancer, but uh, our listeners might not. So um, yeah, I mean, I think the typical process is usually you get diagnosed and you do some sort of chemo to try and shrink the tumor and usually radiation uh, is the first step. So you may do three to four months of chemo. Sometimes it's less, and then you'll have your surgery and you'll have time to prepare. Your doctor will say, well, we can reconnect you right then and there, or we can't reconnect you and, and we'll have an ostomy. And so what an ostomy is, is, you know, after you've had a trauma to your, um, your digestive system, your colon, you can, you can have either an ileostomy or a colostomy. And basically it's where your intestine is no longer connected uh, to your rectum. It, it came out of my abdomen. Uh, and so I had a bag that I would wear. Um, and I went, that's how I went to the bathroom. That's how I, I pooped. And uh, it's definitely a life adjustment. Um, you know, it's, uh, you can't, it's different than being able to go to the bathroom where you're like, oh, I feel like I have to go to the bathroom. I can go mm-hmm. to the bathroom. It's like, it just kind of happens when it happens. And, you know, you wear it under your shirt. And I, I will say that there's a lot of great support uh, for ostomies out there now. I, I think that in the modern era, it's a lot easier to connect to other ostomates uh, as they often mm. refer to themselves. Uh, and, and there's just so many inspirational stories. I think particularly of this uh, phenomenal photographer and like rock climber, and his name is Ben Moon. And he also was a, an early onset colorectal cancer patient. And he still does his rock climbing and still does his photography and surfing. Um, and if you ever get a chance, uh, I recommend to check him out and, and read oh, his book. I would love his dog Denali. Um, oh, there's a documentary or a short film. Mm-hmm. That is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I know exactly. Is it, it's called Denali, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And he also wrote a book, uh, which came out more recently. Um, and I would definitely recommend it. And he is just such a, an inspiration, I think, to how you can live your life with an ostomy and, still do all the things that uh, you wanted to do. But, but I will say that a lot of folks have time to prepare for that. And, and I woke up with one. And so I don't know that I went through the, like, I, I imagine that had I had to have the time to prepare, I would have had a lot more frustration and gone through the, like the stages of bargaining and anger and, you know, why me and whatnot, but it was just like, well, there it is. Uh, <laughs> it's here now. There's not much I can do about it. And just for clarity, I actually was fortunate in the way that, you know, what I had to have removed, I, I don't have an ostomy anymore. So fast forward, you know, a year from diagnosis, um, when I was done with treatment, I, I did have my ostomy reversed. Um, but like I said, I, I had it for nine, 10 months and uh, learned to live with it. And um, to anyone out there listening, it's it's not this huge, scary thing. It's It's an adjustment, just like you know, any medical issue that we deal with, but uh, life can very much and very quickly resume to normal when you live with an ostomy. Yeah. Both of my parents had colostomy bags. My mom had ulcerative colitis. My dad had colorectal cancer and it was a part of both of their journeys. And, you know, as a adolescent, I, I didn't have the, the questions and words that I have now. And I just have so many, um, and just so much compassion for them in hindsight, as they were navigating that process, you know, without a lot of community, without social media. I mean, I had never heard anybody else talk about it ever besides my parents. And, you know, occasionally you'd hear like some comedians poking jokes about things like that. And it was, I was very sensitive to it because I knew what a, what an emotional and difficult thing it was for both of my parents. And, you know, the realities of it, I think, you know, 
it's important for people to understand that it's not a big deal. Like it's absolutely an, a great alternative in, and a great option for people in their, in their process, but it also is a big deal. And we should have, you know, respect for that. I can remember even just going like to the movies with my dad and, um, you know, how he, it was leaking and he was having some kind of issue and burning. And it's like, it really is just such a, I mean, it's just such a difficult part of the process that you can't, um, I mean, I just want to give weight to it, I guess, because I know how much it means and signifies for a lot of people. I also saw the differences, you know, my mom, especially as a woman, just what that meant for her and how she, you know, how that changed her relationships and her views about her body and self-esteem. And so I do think that uh, it's really just important to talk about both sides of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I didn't mean to underplay it. It wasn't, no. it wasn't all sunshine no, and daisies. Didn't. It was, um, and, and I, you know, it's funny you hit on the comedian thing. Cause that was something that I guess I had never paid attention to easy, but I remember, you know, now, and when I had one seeing like suddenly like seeing the jokes, you know, on TV shows, like on family guy or just in comedians or whatever. And it's like, this is such a low hanging fruit that you're like making fun of me for this medical issue I'm dealing with. Um, and yeah. it, it, like, it really like was one of the first times that I personally like saw something on TV that I was like, I don't want to watch this anymore. Like, yeah. that is like, I'm not okay with like that. You just made the joke at the expense of me and others who live with this condition. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, when you think about what you're actually saying, it's just like, why would you, of all the things we could choose <laughs> to, to poke fun at, it's like, it's just such a vulnerable part of this process for people who are already struggling and I appreciate a lot of comedy and I understand, you know, there's a lot of gray area, but you know, always going to offend someone. Yeah. And if it affects you, I mean, it's, it's super real. I, I read in, in some of your posts, there was a couple of lines that struck me where you said that you were exhausted by hiding this quote hideous part of you. That's, I, that's not my words. That's your words, just to be clear. Um, but just the, the burden of, uh, not being able to, to share that. And then the transition, you said that you had, uh, you said in my 26 years, I've never been ashamed of who I am and I'm not going to start now. And I thought that that was just really powerful and letting people in on that, that part of the process. How did that feel? What kind of responses did you get? I, my whole cancer journey, I made very, very public, uh, you know, from diagnosis on not, not in the run-up. Um, and there's this piece where people look at you and they say, you're so inspirational, you know, oh, you're doing so well. Um, and I, like, that wasn't what I was going for. It was, and, and so I think to me, to be genuine, it felt really important to share the awesome and to say, Hey, this is, this is also what comes along with it. Like, this is, this is what I need. This is keeping me alive. Um, and it's hard. And, and again, like I was single and the thought of, I didn't know if I would be able to reverse my awesome, uh, you know, until after I was done with treatment, it, it, I thought, you know, it may be permanent. Um, and the thought of, okay, like what is dating going to be like for me with this? That's, you know, on top of cancer, I also have to talk about the ostomy and all these things. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, but I, I just, to me, it was easier to just put it out there than to feel like it was this big secret that I had to, to wait and then later tell people about it was like, nope, it's all out here. You can see, you know, what I'm going through. Um, and it was, it was just relief to, to be able to share it. I think for me to not feel like, you know, there's such a stigma against it. Like, like we've talked about and, and I didn't want to feel like I was hiding it. I didn't want to feel like I was contributing to the stigma. Yeah. Was there anything 
you know, that people said or reacted in ways that were helpful or particularly unhelpful? I mean, through the, through the whole cancer process, I can speak to that. So I'll, I'll wrap up kind of the end of my cancer journey yeah. was I was living in Florida and, and frankly, the, the prescribed treatment was going to be six months of chemo and see what it looks like from there. And I had no, you know, I had some great roommates, but they were also pilots and had jobs that meant they would be gone at odd hours flying. And, yeah. uh, and so I, I had no one to really help, help me get through it. So uh, the Navy thankfully uh, sent me home. They sent me back to Northern California for treatment so that I could move in with my parents and have some caretaker support, which I am so grateful for. The, the Navy took such good care of me. So I moved back to Northern California. Uh, I did a couple rounds of chemo in Florida and then did a, a big, long cross-country, uh, great cancer road trip with my big sister who helped me drive across the country uh, That's awesome. my dog uh, back to Northern California in time for my next round of chemo. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did my six rounds of chemo there. And, and to answer your question, you know, what was helpful and what wasn't helpful, um, I think there are a lot of things that it's there's no right thing to say, frankly. Uh, and I think that at Thoughtful Human, you touch on that often and you so eloquently, uh, you know, so much of what you do hits to that, that sometimes there's just not the right words and being there is what matters. Um, and, and I do have, you know, friends and folks I know in the cancer community who have been very offended by people saying the wrong thing. And, and that's absolutely their right. But I always try to take it with the approaches. If somebody's reaching out, they're probably doing it from a place of love. They're trying to be supportive. Um, but there are some things that that were challenging where people were like, oh, you look so great. Like, I can't even tell you're, you know, you're in treatment. And it's like, mm. well, yeah, my, my specific chemo regimen didn't make my hair fall out. It's not mm-hmm. one of the side effects. Not every chemo does, but I still mm-hmm. felt terrible. Mm-hmm. And it was still just a challenge to get out of bed a lot of days. Mm-hmm. And so to hear, like, oh, you look great. Like, yeah, you look like nothing's wrong. And it's like, well, I don't feel like that. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, that speaks to a lot of, kind of invisible illnesses that yeah. a lot of people deal with, but that was kind of my experience. That was one of the most frustrating things I dealt with were people who were just like, oh, you're doing so great. Everything's wonderful. And it's like, no, it's really not. Yeah. Um, On the other hand, if, you know, would you have been offended if people said you didn't look great? And then my broader question is just, is it appropriate to comment on how someone looks in this process? Is that is that helpful in any way or is it unhelpful? Like there's this, line where we can't be so politically correct. Like we have observations and, you know, we're, we can't be overthinking every sentence that we say at the same time, maybe we take that off the table and you know how you look and maybe we don't need to say that. What what do you think? Yeah, no, that's a great point actually. And uh, had somebody said, you don't look great. I probably would have just agreed with him. Like, yeah, I don't feel great. (laughs) Um, But again, like I said, uh, you know, to, some folks that would have been super offensive also. Um, and I, I always just took it as, you know, I, I genuinely believe that anyone who was commenting was trying to come from a place of love and trying to just connect with me. Um, and so that was always my takeaway. And yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe we just shouldn't comment on how folks look. <laughs> That's probably the answer. It's, it's um, something that I actually have moved towards in all of my conversations, knowing that, you know, weight loss or gain comes from so many things. And that, you know, I know that some of the times I've been most depressed in my life, I've been the most fit. And I'm like, we can't, it just, I don't really need to comment on anyone's appearance. I don't, all I care about is how do you feel? How are you doing? And so that's what I've personally tried to focus more on. Um, And I'll say another thing that I felt like was particularly helpful. And and this is, 
a me thing. So I, I know that I'm going to like prescribe this to everyone because this might not work for your loved ones or friends who are facing cancer. But um, when I moved back home, two of my best friends from growing up also lived at home at the time, lived, you know, in my hometown of Chico. And one of the most helpful things was just to be able to hang out with them and not feel like a cancer patient. When you publicly have cancer, you get very used to kind of the pity eyes where mm-hmm. it's hard to explain the look, but there's just this look where, you know, people are feeling sorry for you. Um, and I had these few friends in particular who just never did that to me and never treated me like anything was different. And they, they respected my boundaries when I was exhausted and couldn't hang out, or even if we were hanging out and I needed to just go lie down. But otherwise they still, you know, talk trash to me and did all mm-hmm. the normal things that 20 something year old guys would do. Um, and didn't, didn't coddle me in any way. Um, and still, you know, ribbed me in all the ways that friends do. And, and that like meant the world to me to just be able to hang out and not think about it, to not have somebody treating me delicately. Yeah. Um, huge. I love that. I saw you describe cancer, cancer me versus me. And I can imagine those are two different worlds that you're straddling throughout this experience. Right. And even watching, you know, throughout your posts, what off chemo weeks look like versus on chemo weeks. And I'm wondering how that just shifted your perspective, your goals, your relationships, you know, you seem to be really making the most of your weeks that were off. And, you know, there's all these cliches about, you know, maximizing all of your time and doing all of your bucket list things in these kinds of circumstances. How did you feel about that and what, how did it shift your perspective? Yeah. Um, and, and again, at the risk of sounding cliche, uh, the reality is the way my chemo cycles worked, I, I did chemo every 14 days. And so that, uh, like you, you mentioned with the off and on weeks, that meant that I had, you know, a, a week where I felt pretty miserable. And, and then the week in between cycles, uh, I, I had a pretty good week. And I, I, I think that I really did appreciate the things more. And it made me even just the little things, just being able to go for a nice walk with my dog and not be tired or, um, you know, hang out with my friends or drive to another city and do something, you know, go to San Francisco for the weekend and, and hang out with my sister who lived there. Um, it, it just made it all that much more special to, to make the most of those, those off weeks because the, the chemo weeks, I, I knew I wasn't going to be doing a whole lot. Yeah. Do you feel like you've been able to harness that? I know this is one of those things you know, even like with COVID, right. As we're starting to go back to some normal things, I already see myself immediately taking certain things for granted. And I'm like, no, like, how do you, how do you bottle that feeling and that memory and really savor all of these, you know, life and all of the beautiful things around you? Do you feel like that was more present early in your remission or do you carry that perspective with you? A little bit of both. Um, so early in remission, uh, it, it was also a challenge because I, I spent a long time, you know, I was healthy and spent a long time dealing with what was next for the Navy, um, which for them ultimately led to a, a, a medical separation. But that's a very long process in which I was kind of stuck in limbo, stuck in my hometown, ready to not be stuck in my hometown. I technically, you know, wasn't allowed to travel all these things because I still technically was like a member of the Navy and you can't just like go plan a trip you know, around the world when you're uh, active duty. Uh, so that was challenging. It was, it was definitely like a mental struggle there. Um, and, and once I finally got that decision from the Navy, it was also really freeing. It was, it was awful because I lost a career that I'd spent years working towards. I mean, I, I spent 
three and a half years learning to fly helicopters for them and then was told I would never be able to fly again. Um, it's heartbreaking. Or at least, at least not for the Navy, uh, you know, not in a professional capacity. But I, I definitely harnessed some of that, those thoughts. And, you know, in the time while I was waiting for the Navy, I made the most of what I could do locally. I, I spent a, a week um, volunteering at a, a camp for um, kids with cancer. Actually, it was kind of local in Northern California. It's called Okaizu. Uh, and I went up there for a week and at the end of the week, they said, hey, we really need male counselors is for next week. Is there anyone who can stay on? And that was like a yes moment where I was like, yeah, I can stay on another week. Like uh, I'll check in with yeah. my you know, Navy office and make sure nothing's going on. But like I'm doing a lot better here than I would be sitting at home. And uh, so a lot of those kind of I got really involved with advocacy at that point also. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, we talked way earlier about about having community and I connected with a group called the Colon Club. It's a nonprofit um, that I now sit on the volunteer staff of, which is wonderful. But uh, it specifically focuses on early age onset colorectal cancer. And uh, I was selected to get to be one of their, you know, featured advocates uh, for the year. And they flew me out to Tennessee for a week. And I spent or a little under a week, but I, I spent this long weekend with other people who had lived through exactly what I'd lived through, um, which there's no words to describe what it feels like after so long feeling so alone, you know, in the, yeah. in the cancer center, when you're the youngest person by 30 years, it's hard to connect with people. You mostly yeah. just get these pity looks. And, and then I, I got to connect with this advocacy <clears throat> group and meet my peers face to face and really bond with people who knew exactly what I had been through. Yeah. Um, that's so, that's so powerful. I'm so glad you were able to do that. Also around community, you know, I noticed it seems like you have a really supportive family and group of friends and I can't remember the exact line, but you said something about just the, how impactful their love and support had been on a bad day, what it can do to turn a bad day around. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that just in your personal network and with your community specifically with early onset cancer, just what, what were some of the things that really you found uplifting during that time? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I am, I'm still eternally grateful. My parents, you know, at 26, let me move home and took care of me while I was sick, uh, which is more than I, you know, could have ever hoped for. And my, uh, you know, my big sister came home as much as she could. And, and she spent, she, she was, had planned to leave one job for a new job and had planned to take about three or four weeks off and go on an international trip. And instead she flew to Jacksonville, Florida and spent a week with me, taking me to chemo and then moved me across the country. And that was her like time between jobs. Then she went to her mm-hmm. new job and my family gave so much to help take care of me. And, and just, the knowledge that they were there for me and to have that support was huge. And, and kind of like on top of that, my friends, I had a week, you know, where my folks, both my parents had, you know, previous engagements and couldn't take me to my chemo appointment. And one of my buddies just dropped everything and said, yeah, of course I'll take you. And, and he sat there for the four hour infusion and drove me home afterwards and got me food on the way home, uh, you know, so I could eat before I started feeling icky and uh, um, having that support network is huge. And I think that that's a piece that often doesn't get talked about with, cancer patients in general or, or any kind of long-term illness is how important caregivers are and how they're often underappreciated and they're so important. And I think that through the diagnosis, I think it was probably more challenging for my family than for me, because for me, it's just one day at a time. What do I have to do to you know get out of bed and take care of myself? But I think it's a lot harder to watch somebody you love go through difficult times um, because you don't have that that control. For me, it was like, 
I knew what I needed to do to motivate myself to get through the day to get out of bed. But mm-hmm. to somebody watching it, all they can do is watch and hope that I'm feeling okay and do whatever they can. And I think that, um, I think that especially in the cancer community, I'm I'm seeing uh, a greater turn towards acknowledging the importance of caregivers and giving support to our caregivers and making our, sure our caregivers have breaks because it's a full-time job and most of them also have lives. Um, and I'm eternally grateful for mine. Uh, and, you know, if you have somebody who you know who has gone through something like that, make sure that you're thinking about the caregivers too, because um, in my experience, at least, you know, I can only speak for me, but I felt like they had just as hard, if not harder of a time, you know, having to watch me be ill than I was actually being ill. Yeah, I think that that's really important to touch on. I always think of it as like these circles and like the ripple effect around cancer. You talk about, you know, literally the name of the organization, Cancer Support Community. It's like you have your actual um, people with cancer, your patients, and then you have your immediate family and caregivers around them. And then you have the people supporting your caregivers. And like, it just, it, it is a major cliche, but it does take a village. And there really are so many, um, points along the way where people are having, um, you know, experiencing trauma. I I was talking with Elizabeth Franklin, who's wonderful. And, you know, she's talking about trauma as a patient in the moment of diagnosis to that moment when it turns from, you know, treatment to end of life planning to the trauma of, seeing and experiencing different parts of the process. And there's just, there's a lot of layers there for a lot of people, I think, involved in the process. It's, it's very clear to me looking at your journey that you have a lot of people that really love you. And I, I get annoyed when people speak on behalf of, of my dad or family, but I would just like to share with you that, you know, for me, caregiving was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And was also the the greatest gift and joy of my life to be able to do that for for my dad. And so, you know, things like taking, taking that time that should be off to have fun between jobs, you know, it's, I think an honor for a lot of family members to be able to step up and support the people that we love. At least that was my experience. It's certainly not one size fits all, but. Um, it's really nice. I think it's nice to be reminded. I think that sometimes I have a little bit of guilt of, of how much my family and friends gave to, to help take care of me in that time. And uh, I hope they all know that, you know, if the shoes are reversed and if one day they are, I'll be there. I hope they do. I hope they do know that now they do. At least it's on, it's on record. I, I can't rid you of that guilt, but I, I wish I could because truly, you know, if my dad were here today, there would be not a single thing he should feel guilty about. And uh, he, although he would, <laughs> he would feel <laughs> moving back. I had a couple specific questions that I wanted to ask you. One that is really extra sensitive and that I think we shared some similarities in our experiences was around this conversation about, or lack of conversation about survival rates and about death. I saw in one post, you mentioned numbers and statistics, and you said you were going to mention it once and you weren't going to mention it again. And I, I didn't look at any numbers growing up because I did not want to know. I knew that my dad had stage four cancer. I knew the numbers weren't good. His uh, philosophy was always, how do we be in the 5% or 1% versus looking at all these other things. And that's where we put all of our energy at the same time. You know, I, I wonder if there was this line where 
you know, I think his positivity and strength served him very well throughout 10 years battling colorectal cancer. But of course, I wonder now as an adult, you know, how often did he think about the possibility of his death? How did he how did he feel about it? Did he want to talk about it? And I'm wondering what those thoughts were like for you. Yeah, um, so you, you really did do a deep dive. I'm impressed. Um, I but, did. Uh, <laughs> I told yeah, you I like was feeling real creepy when we got on here. I'm like, no, no, I could quote uh, a lot of things about you, and that's a little weird. <laughs> Um, but, but that really was how I approached it. I mean, I, I kind of looked it all up. I knew that my curiosity, I eventually would have to, but I kind of saw it and I said, okay, cool. Um, and the reality is, you know, even my doctors, nobody wanted to give me numbers, which I was grateful for, but also, you know, being 26, the numbers I was looking up, you know, it, it's different. It, it didn't apply in the same ways, you know, the data doesn't all match up. So that was kind of how I took it. I said, cool. There are some numbers that exist. I'm not going to worry about them. They may be exactly right for me, or they may have nothing to do with me. And I'm going to do what I have to do day to day. Um, but I, I think that that aside, you still, you know, you, you can't go through this experience and not face, uh, think about your mortality a bit. And it, it definitely, you know, it, it kind of goes back to talking about appreciating the the good weeks. It, it kind of ties into that. It's like, you know, we all, it's, it's hard to think about your mortality in your twenties. Most of us aren't thinking about mm-hmm. that. Um, but I think that it made me appreciate those good weeks a little more. And it's still something that I, I try to make sure I'm finding joy where I can and trying to cram as much goodness in what I have, you know, what I have now, uh, because I, I appreciate it a little bit. Yeah. Is that something that your family openly talked about or asked you about? And either way, did you want to talk about, would you have wanted to talk about it? You know, it's not, and I don't know that I would have been super receptive of somebody wanting to yeah. talk to me about it. For me, it was something that I needed to be introspective about and figure out where I, what my thoughts were on it. Um, and and that was just my experience. You know, I'm not saying yeah. that that's a, no, a one size fits all. That's, but, uh, that's what we're doing here. We're just sharing perspectives. So you are you are certainly not everyone, but that's interesting to hear. I also just noticed throughout your whole journey, you know, the whole journey that I've witnessed via social media, um, just the role that humor played. And I am curious how much of that, just if you thought that was helpful, if that's just natural to you, if you use that as a kind of a defense mechanism, or just tell me a little bit more about that. And uh, it seemed like from my, from my outside perspective that it made it really approachable for a lot of other people, but I'm wondering what that was like for you. Yeah, I, I would say it was definitely a defense mechanism in a way. Uh, you know, I, I felt like there were a lot of times where it's like, well, I can either cry or I can laugh and I'd rather be yeah. laughing about this. Yep. Um, and there were certainly times where I, I wasn't able to laugh until much later. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I do think that part of it too was to try and, you know, when, once I started sharing my story, I realized the reason I, one of the reasons I wanted to share my story was because I felt like there were so few of us out there. Uh, and when I was diagnosed and told that, you know, there's nobody else my age or there's so few, I, I want, I didn't want somebody else to hear that and not be able to get online and find somebody else. Who did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to make it as approachable as I could. I, I, I think that just, I don't think of myself as a particularly like, you know, I'm not a like stand up comedy kind of guy. Like, uh, you know, people don't sit here and like, go in stitches over things I say, but I, I just wanted to kind of soften the edge of 
a hard topic um, that might be a little bit intimidating to approach, even if it's something you or a loved one's going through, it's, it's a little easier um, to go about it that way. And, and I would say a role model that a social media role model that I have in that, in that area is, um, oh my goodness, I cannot remember his last name. Uh, I'm so sorry, but his first name is Justin and he is a uh, testicular cancer survivor. And he really uh, turned his humor into a way of uh, advocating and empowering and educating all these people. And, and his handle is a ballsy sense of tumor. And, we'll and he really like used his platform as this platform of like comedy and education and made it approachable and another kind of stigmatized kind of cancer to talk about. And so he was a huge, you know, not that I ever came close to anything he did, but I saw that what he was doing was a way to kind of soften those hard topics and allow people to engage with it. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, just the emotional labor, though, that the person going through it has to do to soften it so that the rest of us can handle it. It's like kind of ridiculous, but it certainly is helpful because so many people just are at a loss and don't understand how to even, you know, receive or react to, you know, information that is, you know, unfamiliar, I guess, or scary to some people. You know, I talked about the similarities, you know, my dad had TPN. We eventually were administering that to him at home, you know, had similar horrible experience with the NG tubes and everything from the medications that you were talking about to, um, to buying blueberries and pomegranate seeds and all of these things. And I think there is a, I mean, there's definitely a, a joy and a comedy in sharing those things with other people. And your fanny, my dad also had a port and the fanny pack for his chemo and you said something about it. So this chemo rager could keep banging all night long or something like that. And he would have appreciated it for sure. I'm like, my dad was also a recreational pilot, not, not for his career, but I was like, man, different time and place. You guys uh, could have had some fun with, with this, but (laughs) anyway, so, you know, I kind of jumped the gun on, on the, the, where your story is at today. You are in remission. Congratulations. (laughs) How long have you been in remission? Uh, about three years and three months. So yeah, three and a three and a quarter years. So pretty happy with that. Amazing. How does that feel? It feels great. Um, you know, especially getting, getting past the, the first few years where every minor ailment in my body is cancer again in my head. Um, Mm -hmm. getting a little, you know, being able to behave a little more, I wouldn't say it's irrational to have fears of cancer recurrences, but being able to treat, you know, normal allergies like allergies and not a, you know, impending doom. Yeah. Um, And you have a partner now. Do you talk about it together? Is that a part of your relationship? You know, I found it, I found it really helpful to connect with people that I just naturally have a stronger connection with people who have been through doesn't have to be something similar, but just have had any kind of experience that kind of gives them this, this layer of empathy. And I'm wondering if that's been the case for you and how that kind of has manifested in your relationships, romantic or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, so I did not meet, uh, Megan, my, my partner, I met her when I moved out here to DC a little under two years ago. And while I was super upfront uh, first date, talking all the heavy things, uh, you know, the cancer and everything. Um, She's always been very supportive and very open about it. Um, But I I would say it's also, it's hard because it's like 
at this point in my life, it's not something that she got to live through. I think that sometimes it's hard in that she, she wasn't there for it. Um, mm-hmm. And not, not hard for me or her particularly, but like, it's just this whole piece of my life that it's hard to explain and hard to yeah. like bring her into. And and so she's, she's super supportive and has always, you know, listened and, and wanted to be a part of as much as I want to bring her in. But it is tough. I think in that, like, there's this huge piece of my life that defined me that she didn't know me through. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard on both ends because it's just, you know, how could you know or understand? And of course we don't want anyone to have these experiences, but it is such a, it, I mean, it just changes you for sure. I think as a, as a human and uh, explains a lot. And I know myself, I've had a hard time getting people up to speed <laughs> because it's a lot, it's a lot. And she's, she's mostly patient, which I'm grateful for. Uh, no, not mostly patient. Like she is always patient, which is one of the things I'm mostly grateful for. You know, I, I still have days where, you know, the anxiety hits in or, you know, in days before a scan and she's very, very patient with me and, and it's just there for me. And, and that's all I could yeah. ask for. And, 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 you know, a partner. And so, yeah, um, it, it is hard. Like you said, to catch somebody up to speed and try and fill them in on years of your life. That Yeah. And that even, of course, it helps a little bit, but you're like, no, but it felt like this and you, it looked like that. I mean, there's just no way to to really fully <laughs> convey the intensity of of some of the process. And, you know, for me, I think I realize now it, I don't need to. I think I felt that need for a while, like I needed someone to to bear witness to what I had been through. And I realized at this point that, you know, that doesn't necessarily need to be your partner that you dump everything on or you know any one person that's uh, it can be a community of people that can be mental professional mental health support did you see anyone throughout your journey or now as far as uh therapy mental health goes i think that that was one of the biggest things that um i have been lacking in my follow-up um i i didn't have when i really needed support was really right after remission which uh sounds maybe counterintuitive to some but for me it was like the world was like, great, you're better. Like, we're so happy for you. Get back to life. And me, I was like, what do you mean get back to life? Like, I just lost my career. Like, I'm moving back home to my hometown, which I love, but not where I expected to be in my late 20s. Um, it was just starting over from square one at, you know, I was 27 years old at that point after, you know, almost a year of treatment and and not really knowing what was next. And uh, it, it was hard. Uh, and I, I wish that I had been more proactive. Um, and I, I still feel like I probably uh, could use a little more professional I, I'm, I like finally have a general uh, primary care provider and I talked to him about it recently and uh, getting some resources to kind of start finally taking care of myself in ways that I, I wish I had for longer. And it's funny because that was one of the things that drew me to the cancer support community. I thought, you know, this is so great that like I didn't have the support when I really needed it. And it's there at the intersection of mental health and cancer really yep. is, is what they are. And um, I feel like it's pretty hypocritical to advocate for better <laughs> mental health and not be taking as good a care of my own as I should have been. Yeah, it's a huge part of the process. And I think it's really common, but not well understood that it comes at unexpected points in the journey. You know, it's there's this, as I'm sure you've seen, phenomenon where everybody, you know, gathers around you right around a diagnosis or a surgery. And then there's just so much fallout um, physically, emotionally from all of these things. And that's when a lot of times the people aren't there. And I know for me, you know, I had a really hard time saying that I was struggling. I just always had this, like, I wish just someone could be a fly on the wall and like, understand 
of what I'm like, see how much I'm struggling without me having to what felt like, you know, be dramatic or attention seeking. And I, I don't even know how to say like, no, like I'm really, really not good today. And that felt really hard to me at the time. And I can imagine you had maybe some similar experiences. I, in, in the, the access, you know, that's where the cancer support community does come in and is so great. It's like, it was also a financial thing. It was a conflict with my career and work schedule. And there's just so many factors to actually getting that support. But, you know, for me, I will, I will give you a push if you are still considering (laughs) and, um, you know, wondering if that would be worthwhile at this point, I think I'd like to say the answer is yes. I've been going to therapy for several years and, um, found it really, have found it really helpful in just unpacking all, all the things. So uh, your advocacy work, you mentioned cancer support community. Tell me a little bit more about the kind of advocacy work that you do and what that, um, where we can get involved today. Yeah. uh, So I have done advocacy work with quite a few different organizations now. So I I spent about a year working with cancer support community, actually working as an employee, uh, which was fantastic to be able to professionally uh, take that, you know, take that on. And I also, you know, I first got involved. The the first place I really got involved was through the colon club, uh, the the group that specifically focuses on early onset colorectal cancer um, and just my local American Cancer Society chapter, just putting on a relay for life and things like that. But uh, as far as advocacy, where I found my passions, uh, there are a lot of different avenues you can pursue to, to be a cancer advocate, but where I found my passions were kind of in the policy advocacy realm. And so uh, there are a few places that I, I've been kind of connected through. So the one I probably spend the most time working with now is called Fight Colorectal Cancer. They're one of the, the larger colon and rectal cancer specific nonprofits, and they pretty much lie at the intersection of research uh, and advocacy. So it's kind of where all my passions line up. So, you know, I've worked with a lot of groups, but this is where I've found that as far as volunteering my time, it it just hits the things that I absolutely love. Uh, I I am in a graduate program studying public policy. So I love that. Um, And I do love the kind of the hard science that they do, the the research. Um, But American Cancer Society has a fantastic um, policy advocacy arm that I have spent time going to, you know, my state capital with called the uh, American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. Uh, Cancer Support Community does the same thing where they have policy days to go address issues um, generally that affect, you know, psychosocial health. So, you know, that, that intersection of mental health and cancer. And my advocacy, the advocacy work is kind of what led me to where I am today. Um, I went to fight colorectal cancer's annual call on Congress. So it's their kind of annual symposium, they have all these, you know, or conference where all a bunch of, you know, patients, survivors, caregivers fly to Washington, DC, and they do a couple days of training. And again, there's that peer support, which is huge, where you get to meet other folks who've gone through what you've gone through. And, and it culminates in this day where everyone goes to Capitol Hill in DC and talks to their lawmakers about issues that affect cancer, you know, specifically colorectal cancer, but also the greater cancer community. And it was 2019 that I went to my first call on Congress in, in March. Um, and at that point, I had already been thinking about, you know, grad school and what would be next and restarting my life and what was I going to do? And <laughs> I left that week and I knew I was moving to Washington, D.C. Um, I knew that like that was this is, you know, I wanted to be here. I wanted to be in this city where it all happens. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, you know, I left that that event. It, has, it was so impactful that it was like, yep, I'm going to apply, move to D.C. I'm only going to apply to 
DC based schools that do public policy. And mm. thankfully being the city, like every school, you know, every graduate school here has a, or every college here has a graduate program for public policy. So I had a few options still. Uh, yeah. Um, that's awesome. But it was just so powerful to, to be able to use my voice and feel like I was making changes that hopefully made life better for other folks down the road who are going to be facing the same things I did. Absolutely. What do you think is the biggest opportunity in policy right now for colorectal cancer? Ooh, that is a, a good question. Uh, I will say we had a huge victory this year for colorectal cancer. And that was that for about eight years, uh, there was a, a loophole in the way the Medicare bill was written that uh, if you went in for a colonoscopy and everything was clean, it was fully covered and you had no copays because it was preventative medicine. But if you went in for a colonoscopy and they actually removed a polyp, so they prevented cancer doing what it was meant to do, it was considered interventional and you could be stuck with a 20% copay. Um, and that could be hundreds of dollars. And it, it was a huge barrier to screening. Yeah. There were a lot of folks who frankly just didn't want to go you know, on Medicare who yep. didn't want to go get colonoscopy because they were worried about getting slapped with a $400 bill. It's ridiculous um, that that's the case. And it took like eight years to close that loophole, but that happened this December. And that was like the biggest example of like, wow, this was hundreds of advocates, thousands of advocates across the country, yeah. um, you know, working in one thing I love about cancer advocacy is that it, you know, cancer doesn't discriminate. It's something we work on both sides of the aisle with, um, you know, it's, it's not a partisan cancer is not a partisan issue. It's mm -hmm. something that we work with everyone on to, to try and make these policies better. And that was just such a huge win to get that passed. Um, upcoming, there's, there's always, you can always ask for more money for research and support. I, I know one of the big asks from the, the cancer, the colorectal specific advocacy groups is the creation of a separate DOD research program. So for a little bit of background, con Congress actually funds what is called the Department of Defense peer-reviewed medical research program. Um, and this is a program that gives a big chunk of money to research for uh, a whole bunch of different diseases, but there is a, a cancer bucket and there also exists a breast cancer bucket and a few other specific cancers that have their own bucket of funding. But right now, colorectal cancer falls into that main cancer bucket. So it has to kind of fight for funding for research, uh, even though colorectal cancer is actually the second leading cancer killer. Mm -hmm. So a big ask uh, coming up is going to be to create a, a separate program that specifically funds colorectal cancer research. And um, I think that's kind of the biggest, the newest uh, big ask. Um, and I actually am very personally connected to this program, not because just I was in the military, but I actually sat on a review panel for it this year uh, through my advocacy work. Um, basically, all of these research panels take a what's called a consumer reviewer. So someone who is a caregiver or a patient, um, and they're there to kind of make sure that uh, somebody is proposing a new treatment or a drug or a clinical trial that the, the patient element is, is really considered the human element. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, we're there too. And this is something that cancer support community does a lot of work on, on, on talking about, you know, endpoints, patient endpoints. And that means like, what are we measuring success by and what does this look like for the patient and making sure that something that's proposed really has the patient's best interest in heart as far as quality of life goes and things like that. So I got to sit on this fantastic panel. Um, CSC, actually, one of my former uh, coworkers is uh, how I got nominated to sit on the panel after doing a, an extensive review process. I was, I was, chosen to be one of the consumer reviewers, which was fantastic. And, and that's it's so cool. 
kind of another piece of advocacy that it's not quite policy advocacy, it's more research, but yeah. it all ties together. You know, the policy folks are asking for more money for the research folks and mm-hmm. it all ties together. Um, Is there any ways that people can support that specific initiative to to break out funding for colorectal cancer specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that that's going to be a big ask coming from Fight CRC specifically uh, it's, as one of their prerogatives. So you can uh, go to their website and they'll have action alerts where you can write to your member of Congress or your senator saying, hey, this is something that matters to me. Um, and I'm also currently interning for a member of Congress. Uh, so I, I see that kind of incoming mail and I know that they take that seriously. And, and you know, you can call your Congress, Congresswoman, Congressman or, or uh, Senator and say, hey, I want you to, you know, focus on X, Y, and Z, and, and uh, they care. Those calls matter. Um, there's somebody live on the other side of the phone writing everything you're saying down and passing that along that, uh, that these issues matter. So, uh, you know, you can do it formally through a group who, you know, Ace American Cancer Society does fantastic drives. You know, if maybe you're not specifically have a connection to colorectal cancer, but just cancer in general, there's lots of areas you can go. Awesome. Uh what would you say to the 25, 26 year old who thinks that this could never happen to them, who maybe thinks a colonoscopy is invasive? Um, what would you say to those people? There's a few things. Uh, it certainly can happen to you, even if you have no family history and no genetic history. And, um, and no bleeding. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's really important. One of the biggest things that I learned in this process is you need to be your own advocate for your own health. I, I don't know that I would say it's naive because I think a lot of people probably assume this, that, you know, I just trusted my doctors and I'm not saying you shouldn't trust your doctor, but it's okay to question them. It's okay to get a second opinion. It's okay to push back on things. Mm -hmm. They are experts, but you are also the expert of your own body. And when something's wrong, you need to speak up and make sure that you're being heard by your medical team. And as far as the colonoscopies being invasive, well, I, I have two re- replies to that. One, uh, they're not great. The prep isn't super fun. I'm not going to cherry coat it, but it's certainly better than six months of chemo and all the you know surgeries and all the things that go along with it. And uh, so, so that's that's one answer. And and if anyone you know wants resources on how to get through that colonoscopy, reach out to me. You know, it's it's not the end of the world. The prep isn't the worst thing, but also uh, you know there is a reality that it is a little bit invasive and. If you are looking for screenings now, there are less invasive options. There are tests where you can basically send in a stool sample and, and they have pretty good accuracy. Now, that being said, if one of those tests is positive, you're still going to go in for a colonoscopy after. But but there's a lot of new tech coming out and less invasive ways to get screened for colorectal cancer if it's uh, if it's something you need to do. That's great. I had my first colonoscopy last year and... Just my frustration continues to be if if you knew the alternative, you just we it, we wouldn't even have a conversation. But I, you know, I've been pushing and pushing and pushing to get my first colonoscopy. I'm like, please let me do it. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that is so great. I hesitate to say great, but great about colorectal cancer is that there is so much you can do when you catch it early on, and it can be, you know, it can be a really minor blip in your life if you are able to take the steps to, um, to catch it early. So, yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons I've been so passionate specifically about colorectal cancer advocacy, because, um, obviously there's great money to be had in funding research for all types of cancer, but many types of cancer are not preventable. Um, they happen and there, there's no way to prevent it. And 
you know, hopefully we can catch it and treat it. But colorectal cancer is preventable. It's one of the few cancers that we can stop before it becomes a cancer. You know, if you have colonoscopies and get polyps removed, they never become cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if it's caught early, it's a very different treatment regimen. And it's just, it's a whole different conversation than uh, late stage cancer. And and I think that's why for me, it's, it's been such an easy place to fall into because I, I felt like we just need to get people on board and get screened and we literally can save lives so easy and um, mm-hmm. because it's preventable. <laughs> yeah. Don't you just want to shake everyone? You're just going to be like, hello, oh, like gosh, <laughs> need a megaphone. Oh. That's why we're here. It's why I'm sitting at this one. So, okay. Last question. If someone you loved was diagnosed today, uh, three things that you would do to support or three things you'd focus on. That is a great question. I think you know, for, for someone that I love, the, the first step is to, to just be there and listen. Um, there's a lot of well-intentioned advice that is given to, uh, cancer patients or, uh, people, you know, with a recent diagnosis. And sometimes it's not always solicited, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, just to be there and listen. And it's, it's scary. Uh, and don't feel like you need to pretend that it's not, um, like, I, I think that, my advice is just be there. Um, that, that would be one. Um, like I've talked about, you know, being a, an advocate for your own health, be there for you, you know, the person who you're a caregiver for when, you know, when I, when, if they're on treatment or if they're starting to go through these things, they literally might be on drugs to help them through treatment. That means they might mm-hmm. not even really remember chatting with their doctor. So mm-hmm. um, that's what that support network's for. Don't be afraid to ask questions, to write down questions, to make the doctor repeat themselves. Um, you know, help your loved one be their, their own advocate and, and support them in that way. And, and that's huge. And I think, you know, to be fair, a lot of medical professionals recognize that when we are on the meds we're on, we're, we're not going to remember all the things, but uh, it's really important to have some support there in that kind of helping you along with that as well. Um, and I think a third thing is, is just to be patient. Uh, that was one thing that I, I guess I haven't talked about that much, but I, I think that there are days where I just, I didn't want to talk to my family. I just wanted to lie in bed and my mom would like cook a dinner thinking I was feeling great. And I just like, didn't want to come out and eat it. Mm. And like, you know, it's not a slight on, on her or her wonderful cooking or anything like that. And uh, um, yeah, to not take it personally and not put these expectations. That's something I've heard um, more recently from, from some people who've reached out. It's just this idea of like, Thank you for not expecting anything from me right now. Right. I, yeah, I guess those are the, I wish I had like three really great bullet points. I kind of had to like work through that. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that, yeah, just patience, don't expect things, um, listen and uh, help them be an advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. While we're on the cancer things, uh, there's one thing I want to talk about that isn't brought up a lot, which is fertility. Um, and that's something that not just early onset colorectal cancer patients face, but uh, specifically in the, the AYA. So the adolescent and young adult community is kind of the, that's the like acronym that it falls under. And it's not talked about often. And it's this huge thing that, that we face as young cancer patients that I felt like was one of the biggest things that blindsided me that I had never seen really talked about ever um, yeah. in it. And and I think it's important to have a conversation about how treatment affects fertility and how you may lose your fertility going through treatment. And it's this big unknown. And, and I was fortunate enough 
that as a man, it's, it's easier to preserve my fertility. It's easier to sperm bank on short notice. I was told that this was something I should do before I started treatment. And five days later, I could get an appointment and I was able to cryogenically preserve, um, you know, my fertility, but for women, that's a, not always a possibility, uh, you know, being mm -hmm. able to preserve your fertility as one has to tie into the right cycle and hitting it at the right time. And, um, I was very active on social media through my treatment. And I, I made a lot of friends who were going through similar things around the world. And in particular, I had one friend in Australia and, and I remember getting this message from her that she was having to make the decision to delay starting chemo, which was the recommendation or basically she had to choose whether to go against her doctor's recommendation to start chemo when she should to preserve her fertility. So she had to choose between, you know, potentially mm -hmm. having her cancer progress for another three weeks or potentially losing her fertility. And, and that's just a decision that is, I, there's no way to make that right decision. And yeah. it was just so hard to hear that. And I just think it's a conversation that, that needs to be had and something that people need to be prepared for. Uh, I was just so blindsided by it. And I know a lot of other survivors uh, and patients are as well. And um, and it's also kind of one of those things that people don't like to talk about a lot because it can yeah. be uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that's you know potentially another source of shame too for people when you talk about navigating navigating this conversation. Um well, it's great to hear that there were options for you and uh, important for people to know if anyone they love is in this situation. Yeah, um, I, I guess that would be one of the things I would add is know that there there may be side effects and consequences that you have never heard of or never thought about. For me, it wasn't just the fertility. Also, uh, one of the side effects of my treatment, I, I have like neuropathy in my hands and feet. So I, I kind of lost sensation, uh, which was one of the things that led to the Navy um, separating me. Cause I, you know, I'm not safe in the cockpit when I can't feel what's going on with my hands. Um, yeah. There's just lots of long-term things that, you know, your first priority is always just taking care of the cancer and making mm -hmm. sure it's not progressing, but, um, there are costs that come with that and, um, supporting your loved ones as they deal with those as well, because some of those are long-term and they may not even feel it for another five or 10 years, you know, until yeah. they're ready to talk about having kids, you know, if it's someone in their early twenties, or whatever phase in life where they're not thinking about children yet, that, that may be a challenge down the road that kind of re-traumatizes them when they have to deal with that. So I, I just think it's really important to, to have those conversations. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. You are super inspiring. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your candor and how much I've learned from reading your journey and how much I feel I've felt seen myself in reading about your own, your own process. So thank you. <laughs> You're impacting a lot of people. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I will return the compliments. Everyone who's listening already knows how wonderful you are and how amazing thoughtful human is. Um, I was just blown away when we got to meet and have that presentation. It was like, this is, this is like, what we've needed, you know? Uh, so oh, thank you. I, I love everything you do. And I am so like thrilled to, to be a part of this today. So thanks for having me. So we've learned that colorectal cancer is really, really tough, but preventable. In fact, according to the CDC, all colorectal cancers begin as precancerous polyps, which can be detected with colorectal cancer screening and easily removed to entirely prevent cancer from developing. 
Colonoscopies can also catch cancerous polyps early on to help you get really effective treatment. So the current recommendation is to begin getting screened at age 50. If you happen to have a close relative with a history of colorectal cancer like me, the recommendation is to start getting screened 10 years prior to the age of your family member's diagnosis and to get screened more frequently. So instead of every 10 years, I'm getting screened right now every five years. There's also genetic testing available and some other options that you can discuss with your doctor. I know for many, myself included, your first colonoscopy can be really intimidating. Uh, even after watching both my parents routinely have colonoscopies throughout their experience with ulcerative colitis and colorectal cancer, I was still apprehensive to have my first one. I had my first one last year, and I just want to run you through it and talk a little bit more about what it entails to take any of the mystery or unnecessary fears out of the equation for you and hopefully encourage you to schedule your own if you're due for one. So when it's time for you to get your colonoscopy, you will get a bunch of handouts from your doctors telling you exactly what to do. But basically, uh, you'll start to have to move to a liquid diet in the days preceding your colonoscopy. And immediately prior, you have to drink a lot of liquids, a lot of specific liquids that they're going to ask you to drink um, that are going to help you flush out your colon. Uh, so... I will not lie to you. It is a large volume, especially for someone like me who has a hard time just drinking a glass of water, uh, drinking many, many, many glasses of these liquids that we'll say weren't the most appealing to my personal palate. And of course, they do their job. They make you go to the bathroom a lot. Uh, I would recommend getting some wipes or one of those cheap little attachable bidets really clutch in this kind of a moment, you will thank me later. Although of course, not necessary. Anyway, yes, getting it all down is uncomfortable, but it's super important so that your doctor can get a really clear view of your colon. And while the prep is definitely less than ideal, the actual test itself is a breeze. You do have to show up to uh, wherever your medical facility is, you do have to get in a hospital gown and get in a hospital bed, which might feel weird or uncomfortable to certain people. Uh, they will wheel you down to a room with some fancy machinery and they will put you under for the procedure. So in my case, uh, the room felt a little bit bright and a little bit weird at a very early hour when I hadn't slept a lot due to the preparation, but I think they had me count backwards from 10 and literally in about three seconds, I was waking back up in the post-procedure area. Zero pain, zero discomfort, soreness, or any other indication that a procedure had even happened. So can I do that every five years to not have to endure what I watched my dad endure? Absolutely. And I highly recommend that you do it too. Check out the links in the episode notes, talk to your doctor, talk to your family, and let's just make colorectal cancer not an issue for you and the people you love, okay? Please do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thoughtful Human. If you or someone you know has navigated conversations around colorectal cancer or other colon-related illnesses, let us know. We'd love to hear what has or hasn't been helpful for you and always welcome your feedback at hello at thoughtfulhuman.co. If you'd like to follow along in our journey or check out our products, you can visit our website at thoughtfulhuman.co or find us on all socials at thoughtfulhuman. And of course, if you found this episode useful in any way, we'd so appreciate a review to help us reach more people who might need it. As a reminder, this podcast is not intended to serve as or replace professional health or mental health advice. 
If you or someone you know needs medical or psychological support related to cancer, please visit cancersupportcommunity.org. And for a month of free online therapy from a licensed therapist, you can also check out betterhelp.com slash thoughtfulhuman.